Good morning and welcome to Antioch Community Church Brighton. My name is John Lux and I have the privilege of serving here as the Associate Pastor. Today we're continuing our sermon series going through the book of 2 Timothy. Now uh, before I begin I just want to say thank you to a couple of collaborators. So I actually get, get to walk out one of our Antioch values of collaboration. And so I want to say a quick thank you to Sam Sweeten, who uh, is using his gifts as a Bible studier and Bible teacher um, to help me prepare for sermons. If you uh, are interested in using your own spiritual or natural gifts to be a part of a collaborative sermon team, reach out to me. I'd love to uh, allow you to be a part of this as well. All right. Now, throughout 2 Timothy, the phrase used over and over and over again uh, as we talk about the The message of 2 Timothy is fighting the good fight. Now, what does it mean to fight the good fight? In 2 Timothy, Timothy is writing to Paul. uh, So Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's encouraging him to fight the good fight uh, for good doctrine, the fight for the true gospel. And that's what we're contending for in the book. And um, Paul is worried that Timothy, one of his main disciples, is going to sell out on the gospel, that he's going to sell out on Jesus, that he's going to sell out on really following the things that Jesus said. And so Paul's challenging him over and over to fight the good fight, meaning staying true to the teachings of Jesus and to the scriptures. Now, fighting the good fight is not a fight against people. It's not a fight against cultures. Uh, It's a fight for true doctrine. Now, um, Sam gave a great illustration for what I think this looks like. He said that we can think of the imagery of a battlefield, right? And we can imagine that this battlefield uh, is full of dangers, uh, places that we could fall into and get stuck, or things that could really hurt us on the journey of, of marching towards victory against our opponents, which is in this case the devil and the flesh, okay? And... Um, If we imagine that the book of 2 Timothy is coming to us like a battle plan, it helps us to understand why things are being communicated the way they are. So in our passage today, Paul's talking about all kinds of troubles that are coming our way. Um, But a general tells his troops about the dangers that are on the battlefield. He wants them to know exactly what those dangers are and as, as much as he knows where those dangers are. Not to make the soldiers afraid, but so that they can go into battle knowing what's at stake and knowing what's out there. And so that's the kind of context we can take into our passage today. And it's also the context that we can fit our other 2 Timothy sermons sermons into. So, for example, two weeks ago you heard Clark Zahnbrecher, right, talking about how in our places of moral dialogue with other people inside and outside of the church, the, the character of that dialogue has to be a quest for righteousness in our communicating rather than rightness in winning the point. Um, that's another way that we're fighting the good fight. All right. So what does this battlefield look like and what are we up against here? Well, um, so uh, as I get into our passage today, uh, we're going to see that Paul is talking about human nature. And he's pointing out very specifically that the selfishness is one of the built-in pieces of human nature. And how that affects the church and how that affects us in Christian Christian service is a big deal. Uh, Now, we're going to open up here to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Now, I won't ever know 
Because this is a virtual sermon, if you got up from your couch and went and got your Bible and opened it up, but you'll know. Because if you open up your Bible, I guarantee you are going to get more out of it uh, as we uh, study the scriptures and dig into it this morning. All right. So, uh, the unavoidable human tendency that Paul is pointing to in this passage is the tendency for all people everywhere to default to selfish and self-centered patterns of life. All right? Now, there's two consequences of this self-centered pattern of life that Paul is going to pull out in this passage. The first is that the consequence of a self-centered life in Christianity is having no power. No power to heal, no power to help, no power to change, no power to make disciples, no power. The second thing is that a self-focused Christianity is dangerous to other people. A self-focused Christianity is not to be trusted. All right. Now, uh, let's read here, starting in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They're the kind of people who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far. Because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Woo! Zing! I mean, Paul is really shredding these false teachers here. Um, but at the same time, these adjectives he's using are also intended to be applied to everybody who lives in this time period known as these last days. So let me break that down for you. What are these last days? Well, in the New Testament sense, the last days didn't just refer to the end of the world, which is what you would think from the term last days. The last days in the New Testament always refers to the time period between the resurrection and the return of Jesus. So Jesus goes up in heaven and he's someday going to return. The last days define all of the time between the resurrection and the return and second coming of Jesus. So Paul is describing the time period he's writing when he says the last days. And guess what? Paul is also describing the time period we're living in right now, in 2020. And he pretty much hits it on the head, doesn't he? These 19 heavy-duty, nails-in-the-coffin adjectives are just as accurate today describing human nature as they were in 70 AD. And you don't need a Twitter account to know that these are all still true. It's human nature. And, uh, and what's the common thread that weaves through all of these words? What's the common thread, that the theme that unites all of these things? 
Well, I've used the word selfishness to describe it, but listen to how Paul summarizes it. He says, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. That's how he summarizes this selfish life. Having a form of godliness and denying its power. Now, what's Paul's response, right? He says, have nothing to do with people like that. Wow. I mean, is it that big a deal, Paul? Isn't Paul just sort of exaggerating to make his point when he says have nothing to do with people who are like that? I don't think so. And here's why. Let's take a look at two of the phases that some people pass through in their life. Marriage and parenting. Okay? Marriage. Now, not everybody's called to be married, and that's fine. But marriage is gives us a microcosm uh, that, that, that makes it helpful to discuss a lot of things. Most pre-marriage curriculum is designed to take engaged couples through a process of being ready to deal with their own selfishness in marriage. So get this. So the idea of premarital counseling is to help people prepare to deal with not getting it their way anymore when they're married. Um, and you might wish you have a curriculum like that for, for roommatehood or for any other situation in your life. And guys, this is one of the big reasons that marriage is even considered a good thing. The basic idea is that marriage is like this belt sander that grinds off the selfishness on the edges of your life. Because you don't get your way uh, and you don't get to be selfish in a healthy marriage. And that's a good thing. Being forced out of selfish patterns cultivates the opposite of the thing Paul is warning us about. And the next one is parenting. I love being a parent. I love being a dad. There's nothing like it. <laughs> but parenthood is the place where your selfish heart has finally gone to die a gory death. And that's the truth. That's the truth. There are other things in life that will help you deal with selfishness. But man, parenthood, parenthood is the place where selfishness goes to die. And uh, whether you're a foster or a biological parent, there is absolutely no difference. Successful parenting demands a selfish, selfless approach. And it's actually kind of hard to express this to someone who hasn't lived it. So I'm going to do my best to try and show you what it's like when I live the way that Paul is describing in these adjectives in the context of my marriage and parenthood. Um, <laughs> all right, so I'm going to make Paul's point that when selfishness rules in the church, it's a bad thing. It's a powerless thing. All right, so what does Paul say? It says that they will be lovers of themselves. That's an expression of our selfish nature. All right, and so I express this in my own life, being a lover of myself. And so... When it's 10 p.m. and I can't sleep, or it's 11.30 p.m. and I can't sleep, I wake up, and I go out in the kitchen, and I take out the family-sized bag of corn chips. It says right on the top, family size. This is intended to feed all the mouths in my household, perhaps over multiple days. And when I sit down and I eat that entire bag of corn chips, I am giving in to the selfish desires of my heart, being a lover of myself. Now, it's a silly example, but that's us as human beings, selfish. 
And here's another thing that we do. Here's something that else that happens in my life, right? I might be hanging out with, with a bunch of other people, right? And, uh, and I tell a story that makes my wife not look great. Or I tell a story that doesn't honor my friend. Man, that's slanderous. What does Paul say here? It says slanderous, conceited, rash. That these are, this is the way that we communicate when we're focused on ourselves. It's a product of our selfishness. And man, it doesn't create anything good. And right now, in your house, with your roommates, there might be dishes in the sink. Now, there might not be, but there just might. And what are you going to do about those dishes in the sink? Well, Paul is making the point that your human nature is saying that perhaps there is a treacherous, rash, conceited, ungrateful, slanderous, brutal response that you can have to those dishes in the sink. But at the same time, those dishes in your sink represent an opportunity for you and your roommates to grow in selflessness. To be lovers of God rather than lovers of pleasure. And here's the thing, right? Why, why, do we make, why do people talk all the time about marriage? Why do people talk all the time about parenthood? Why do people talk all the time about, about what they learned from their roommate situations or their, their challenging friendships? Why do people talk about that all the time? I think people talk about it because there's an awareness that those difficult relationships draw us to the place of unselfishness. They, they combat our selfish nature and pull us into unselfish expressions of the life of Jesus. Because like, if you're, if you're a mom, right, you've got a couple kids. I was talking to someone just the other day, and they were describing what it's like caring for their kids all day. Little kids, literally not having 10 minutes to take a shower in the day. That's selfless. Nobody's going to come up here and try to tell you that that's fun. But guess what, the, guess, what, guess what I'll tell you that that does have in it? That has power. There's power in selfless life. So I'm not going to tell you it's going to be fun to get married and deal with someone else's junk in your life. But I will tell you that when you live selflessly in the context of your marriage, there is real power there. Because if Paul says the product of selfishness is having a form of godliness but denying its power, then guess what? The opposite is true as well. Which is that living a selfless life, where you really pour out your life to selflessly serve God and selflessly serve the people he's put in your life, the imperfect people he's put in your life, when you do that, your life has real power. When you serve your kids in that way, when you serve your spouse in that way, when you serve your roommate who left those dishes in the sink, you are expressing the power of God in that way. 
And uh, one other example of where we really dealt with this uh, was when, when Lyle and I were on the mission field in North Africa, one of the things we had to do was we had to, we had to process applications. And so uh, people from all over the place would apply to join our team. And uh, one of the things we learned to look for in their applications was to filter out candidates with the question, did anything ever happen in this person's life that challenged the assumption that all of life existed for their fulfillment? Did anything happen in this person's life that challenged their selfish approach? Because what we realized was that the experience of caring for a disabled sibling was much, much more strongly correlated with being a successful missionary than going to Bible school or even going to an Antioch mission school. Now, how could that be? Well, it's the same principle that Paul's talking about here, which is that a selfish Christianity has no real power, but that a selfless Christianity has power to change the world. It has real power of God in it. And I'm going to pull out two more things from this passage before we close. The first one is that, uh, look what Paul talks about here in the second part, right? I said that a, a, a self, selfish Christianity is, is powerless, but it's also dangerous. Look at the ministry description of these, of these false teachers. It says that they worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women. And it's describing an exploitative, controlling ministry environment. And if we're not willing to live unselfishly inside our own private lives and in our, in our lives with our family, then it'll be expressed in ministry environments that are controlling and exploitative. People getting something out of other people rather than serving and loving them. A self-focused Christianity is dangerous and powerless. And I'll address one more thing. It talks about Janus and Jambres. So you may have been reading through 2 Timothy and thought, what is the deal with Janus and Jambres? Uh, I'm going to give you 20 seconds on Janus and Jambres because it closes up our point today. Janus and Jambres, according to the tradition of writings outside of the Bible, were the sorcerers who opposed Moses when he came to set God's people free in Egypt. Okay, So Moses throws down his staff, it becomes a snake. It's a miracle. But these sorcerers used some kind of magic arts to also duplicate this miracle. And so what they were doing was they were faking it, to try, and, to try and act like they had the same kind of power that God had. And Paul is saying, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. So these false teachers who have an exploitative ministry style, their folly will be clear to everyone. Because what happened to Janus and Jambres is at the end of the day, they could not fake it anymore. And they come and they have to say to Pharaoh, this activity that Moses is doing, this miraculous power that God is showing, this is the finger of God. And so when it says that, as in the case of these men, their fall will be clear to everyone, we can trust that God, in, it, in places where selfishness rules, um, God will make it clear to everyone, um, whether in easy ways or hard ways. All right, so how do we respond to this message? Right? How do we respond to the message that Paul is saying? How do we look at this battlefield setup and respond to it? Well, I'm going to say two things. Number one, 
Your response does not need to be getting married to someone with problems. Your response does not need to be having children so that you can learn to deal with their selfishness. Your response does not need to be looking for imperfect roommates to come live with you and rub some of the selfish sheen off of your life. And the response does not need to be going out to find new lazy coworkers who can help you deal with your own selfishness. Because you're probably already blessed with some of those things in your life that God has given you to, to, to work on the, the, the journey of becoming selfless in serving others. Because the thing that we do is we move in the opposite spirit of selfishness. And uh, if, if there really is a general, if it's Paul or if it's God showing us what the battlefield looks like, maybe he'd be giving us a speech today. And the speech might sound something like this. Now, I don't normally preach in this mode, but, but perhaps it would encourage us to get started uh, fighting the good fight today. <clears throat> you need to fight the good fight. You need to kill selfishness in your life. Stop making a treaty with your selfishness. Don't coddle it. I don't want you to negotiate with it. I don't want you to try and nibble away at your selfishness one tiny bit at a time. You need to confess it. Say it this way. Say it with me right now. I am a selfish person. I can't hear you. I am a selfish person. Confess it. Confess it to another person. And say, say this with me. Today I repent of my selfishness. God, show me one unselfish thing that I can do today. Amen. Amen. Because our response is to move in the opposite way. If selfishness wants us to move this way, we're going to move backwards 180 degrees in the other way. And as we do that, we're going to leverage the, the things that God has already put in our life as a way of developing a selfless spirit. And as we do that, we're going to find not, not that we have an outward form of godliness, but no power in the church. We're going to find that we, that we have the opposite thing, which is that everyone around us is aware of how screwed up we are, but we have real power to do the work of God. God bless you in Jesus' name.